said we're ruled by the talking class. Conversation isn't taught in school the way reading and writing are. We're somehow asked to create great conversation from thin air. These podcasts attempt to focus on great conversation. According to Psychology Today, a good conversationalist needs to understand quickly changing subjects and widely differing perspectives. I've chosen my guests For that very reason, I hope you enjoy their view on the world and their shared experiences as much as I have. So let's jump straight back into the conversation with our last guest. I haven't read the whole series, no, but I'm sort of partway through and then I got involved in other stuff and never went back to it. But as soon as you said Ender's Game, I was like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Ender's Game. Yeah, Ender's Game is fantastic, but it's the, it's the second book, or no, it's the third book. It's called um, Zenocide, is what it's called, um, and it is the third book in the series. And in the book, he talks about this concept of of center culture companies, uh, countries, and periphery culture countries. And so there are countries who, so China is a perfect example. Han China. Han Chinese specifically, they are a they are a center a central culture, meaning that no matter who conquers them, whoever conquers them becomes Han Chinese, right? Like, like it doesn't matter all the different stuff and that. And so, to that end, the Mongolians were a periphery culture, right? So they were really defined in relationship to the center culture, and it's a weird way to look at power because oftentimes the cent- the central cultures are not necessarily the ones in power. Oftentimes the periphery cultures are the ones that actually have more power, but they don't have any singular identity for themselves. And, and so their power, they grow in power out of jealousy of the central, of the central cultures. And their ultimate goal is to conquer something. And so you can think of the American identity as the ultimate periphery uh, culture, right? A, a culture that has nothing. The, the problem is, is that we have nothing to conquer, right? There's nothing any, you know, we're, and we're at this time at the end of the 75 year period, we won the cold war, right? We even won the ideological war, a war that could have never been won really. And so now it's like, what is left? Where, where do we divert our energies as a, because we, again, we suck at governance. Um, we we're not a central identity country, right? We have no sense of like, this is what it is to be, you know, American, even though we have values and ideas and stuff like that, it's not the same as, as some of the central culture. So I don't know. Those are just the thoughts that keep me up at night as I, as I, as I go through, as I go through, uh, trying to, trying to fall asleep. Yeah. I think you understand how that works. So. I do. I sort of, I've been, I don't know. I've not lived in England for 20 years and I grew up in New York and Texas. So I don't really feel American and I sort of don't really feel English either. And mm. uh, I guess if I sort of go, had to choose one, it would be sort of more English, but yeah. it's, we're going, I, America seems to be going through this very similar thing that the British went through when we lost the sort of the empire, you know, who are we, you know, what do we stand for? You know, we used to have run the world, you know, the world was pink because the British yeah. empire was pink on a map. And, yeah. but you ended up with this sort of weird feeling of, 
almost not loneliness, but you were just sort of disassociated with your country. Yeah. And I think Britain's sort of done that with Europe now with Brexit. And, yep. you know, we, we don't have a, a, an ideal sense of who we are right. simply because we've come out of Britain. Oh, sorry, come out of uh, Britain's come out of uh, Brexit. And America seems to be sort of coming out of that now that it's, you know, I sort of, I, I was making some notes here. It's sort of, it's been around long enough now to not be a kid. Right. It's got a sort of a, his, a historical perspective and a history. Mm-hmm. And its ideals now are sort of becoming a bit more challenged, I guess. Mm-hmm. And its guiding principles with some of the, the people seem to have been forgotten. Do you think that's sort of a natural process that places go through? Yeah, I think I think that... I think that if you don't have a big baddie to be suspicious of, you start becoming suspicious of your neighbor. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I think we, you know, humans, the last 75 years have had unprecedented food, um, and health. Uh, and it has created, uh, the, it has created a proto version of the Aldous Huxley rave new world, um, where, where, People, you know, they, they live off of, they expect comfort, right? They, they, you know, you, and you see it, I think it was a Sahil Bloom. He, he uh, retweeted a, um, a New York times article about um, what, what do people value? What do, what is the, the biggest thing? What values are on the rise and family, um, you know, personal ideals, country, uh, community, even community involvement, all of them, all of those values are, are in decline. The only value that's growing is, is money is wealth. That's the only thing that people, the, the, according to that, and we say that we, right, we get that pessimistic. This is obviously in a time of high inflationary environment where people are very insecure about whether or not they're going to be able to pay their bills. And so it's kind of natural and that's tough to trust your neighbor when, when that's, that's the world you're living in. Um, but I'll say that, that there's a level of comfort, and I, I, I feel it too. I live in America, right? I'm part, I'm part of the system. There's, there's a level of comfort that is expected that was produced by a very unique set of circumstances that, as Peter Zion outlines, and, and I keep referencing that book because it's top of mind. I just I referenced it. But the, the, it, was, it was created by a very unique set of circumstances that COVID has kneecapped and will never be back again. So in his, in his line, the peak was 2019. Um, and I think a lot of people are starting to get their heads wrapped around the fact that, oh my gosh, the peak was 2019. That was the height of our purchasing power and what was available for us to purchase um, globally, not just America, but, but globally, right? And so you've got China who's about to, who now have more people over 60 than they do under, under 30. So they're about to have massive demographic cratering uh, uh, Russia, same, same situation. Right. And so they threw the last of their 20 year olds at a pointless war in Ukraine. Um, and so now they don't have anybody under 20 anymore, you know, on, on that kind of thing. Um, but you know, you say that Europe, Germany's in the same boat, right? Germany has more They're They're just aging a little bit slowly. And so you've got, we, what we're heading towards is a, ma- a massive population collapse on a global scale. Um, and in, into that foray, the only country that has a semi uh, chimney stack, right, where you've got enough people at the top and enough people at the bottom, is America. Oddly enough, and so so what's going to happen is you know the, this 
we're going to redefine all of our relationships. We're not going to be as globalist. We're not going to patrol the waters anymore. But between us and Britain and then the rest of kind of the Western Hemisphere, we got everything we need right here. So I don't know. That's And that's Peter Zion's prediction anyway. So to check check out that book if you're watching it. If you're raised. I, I will. I'll take a note of that and uh, and I'll post it on the website. But do you think with this, this sort of leads me into your Steiner solutions? And uh, yeah. with that, I mean, for decades, we've had this sort of really positive trajectory towards the sort of stratosphere mm. economically. Yeah. Everybody expects just to get wealthier, their house to be nicer, drive a nicer car, go on nicer holidays, eat better food, whatever it may be, have a bigger, wider screen, that sort yeah. of stuff. Go to more football games, that sort of um, you? How do you, this is the question for the Steiner solution sort of side of you, how do you go about unlocking those sort of managers, sort of new ideas in a world that has changed in mm -hmm. reality so much compared to the traditional world we lived in? Yeah, I've, I've found the first task is actually convincing them how much the world has changed. Um, most, most of, so... I'm of the opinion that ideas are, ideas are, um, I look at ideas like a flow, right? So it's, it's energy flowing through you. It's the capacity of, of the energy of the universe flowing right, right through you. Um, in, in different language, if I was in a different context, I would say it's that touch of divine energy flowing, flowing through you. Um, and so what happens is, is that it can, is it, is it gets stopped up by the world around you, right? And it gets stopped up, it gets stopped up by its need. So the less you need new ideas, meaning that you have comfort, right? So so ideas from a evolutionary biological perspective were how you survived, right? Our capacity to have ideas were the reasons why our ancestors were able to fight off the saber-toothed tigers, survive an ice age, and do all that kind of stuff, because we came up with new ideas and new thinking. It's that energy flowing through us the less need there is to survive, right? The less need there is to procreate and eat and have a, a comfy place to put your head down, the less ideas you have because you don't need it anymore. And that's how the energy flows. And so what I found with a lot of managers and organizations that I work with, the first step is getting them to accept the fact that you have a need that needs to be addressed. You know, so many of them are like, oh, this is great to your point. We've had the greatest, you know, profit that we've had in a long time. We've had the greatest this or, you know, or they may say that the circumstances are so big, there's nothing I can do about it, right? There's nothing I can do to prepare about it. And it's like, oh, there's so much you could do to prepare about it. There's so much we can do to take advantage of that. And oftentimes just, just getting them over that hump of like, okay, I do have a need. All of a sudden the ideas start flowing. It's like, okay, well, if the sky is falling, I guess I could build a roof. What kind of roof would I need? Well, I need this kind of roof that would protect me. And all of a sudden, you've got your next product built out, right? And that, I just gave a silly example there. It could be, uh, you know, the widget or the service on, you know, on that different things. You know, I was working with one client. Um, she uh, she has had her company has had three years of of, of nonstop fifty percent revenue growth, and they haven't brought on a new customer for their company in three years. So for three years, they've worked with the same customers and have 50% year-over-year -year revenue growth. She gives her team, her team gets four weeks a year, two in the summer, two at Christmas time of unpaid vacation where they just shut the whole company down and nobody works for two weeks on top of any other vacation that they get. I mean, she has just built this thing that, that runs like a, just hums. It's just like 
when she hear it, describe it. And so she was like, all right, I mean, you know, so what can we do? I'm like, all right. And she told me all of her plans and all the different stuff like that. And I said, and she goes, this is my growth. I said, here's the deal. I want you to hear the fact that you could do nothing for the next three years and most likely hit all your goals, which means your goals aren't big enough. So let's put those goals aside. What would you like to do? Right. And so it's so easy. So many leaders I talked with, I said, when you close your eyes and think of yourself three years from now, what do you see? And they tell me their projections. They tell me their plans. They tell me all the things that I'm like, guys, you don't understand. Those are the things that are going to happen if you just keep doing what you're doing. Dreaming is the next layer. What's the new thing that I could do that I would have never even given myself permission to think about? And um, the minute I did that, all of a sudden she's like, well, you know, I've always wanted to one day start a company about um, uh, doing wealth wealth transfer management. You know, between between uh, doing non five hundred one c three, it's basically it's basically helping trusts uh, transfer money safely to nonprofits at the end of their life. It's that uh, kind of long term estate planning. She kind of outlined this whole thing, and she goes, "But you know, I always wanted to do that one day once the company was stable." And I was like. How stable? How much more stable do you want the company to be? She's like, wow, I didn't, I didn't know about it, right? And so this is something that takes her from you know a couple seven figures a year to now we're talking eight twenty figures a year because she's already got all these contacts and that kind of thing. So that's those are the conversations that we do at at uh, Steiner Solutions that when it talks about creating new ideas, I'm about. I started reading The Gap and the Gain. I think mm-hmm. it's a colleague of uh, Dan Sullivan, the yep. uh, sort of big business coach guy. And, uh, you know, I sort of, I'm one of those people who have about five or six books on the go. And that's sort of one of those that you can pick up and put down, pick up and put down sort of thing. Um, interesting. She sounds like she's in what they call the gap. Yeah. You know, at what particular point is your company going to be, you know, at the stage that you think, oh, when we've got 200 million revenue, you're like, okay, you will never, ever open that new company. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You keep moving it, keep moving it from there, nor do you need to. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. yeah. Love it. Do you think that some firms sort of get too large to recognize that they need new ideas and are and wound in with that mm-hmm. question is, do you think smaller companies are better at recognizing that because they don't have that, hey, we could literally just shut the doors for five years and we'll still be fine? Right, yeah. I, I think it it's not necessarily the company, it's the person at the top. And so I've seen I've seen Apple, Apple, you know, um, it, it's the person at the top. It's it's the willingness of the CEO to be a part of the new idea generation. And I think your company, I, and I've, se- I've seen small companies where the owner at the top wants to delegate the idea generation, right? The minute that the, the, minute that the owner is not part of the process of creating the new ideas um, is the minute that the company becomes quote unquote too big and stops being innovative. Um, Cause it is, it is the, the prime leadership directive is to pull the group to the future, to make the future happen, to organize the efforts of the group to realize a preferred future. So the group has delegated the decision-making of seeing the future to the leader. And so if that leader then sub-delegate, sub-leases that responsibility out to someone else, that's where you end up with a status quo organization. And so it can be a mom-and-pop shop down the street that struggles because they haven't had a new idea 
because the mom and pop, you know, owner just wants to keep doing the same thing that they've always done. I've always done it this way. Why would I, why would I integrate Stripe and POS system? People can just sign me checks. It's like, you know, those kind of things like that. So, so fortune 500 company can be highly invade, highly innovative, highly successful. And a mom and pop company can, can die and wither on the vine. Um, and it's all down to leadership. So, um, innovation is not a business function. That's, that's the thing that I think a lot of people get out, which is funny for me, cause I am a VP of quote unquote innovation. And that was one of the main things that our president wanted to make sure is that, um, it, we're not delegating the function of innovation to one department. And so nobody else is innovative or we're only tasking one thing. It's about how do we call the collective efforts of the university and keep it all, keep it all moving forward. And so, um, that's, that's how you, you, you have to be as a leader. You can't delegate the innovation process. You can't delegate the vision making process. Um, cause the minute you do, you know, that's, you've delegated your, you've delegated the prime directive of your leadership. Right. So that, that'd be like, imagine Captain Kirk delegating, deciding where the, where the enterprise is going to go next. Right. That's stupid. We'd all laugh at that. That's not a, you know, that's, that's a terrible joke. Right. Imagine Captain Kirk calling a consultant being like, hello, consultant, where should we take the enterprise next? And the, the consultant goes, oh, go explore quadrant boy or whatever. Great. Thanks. Click. We wouldn't call Captain Kirk the captain anymore. Right. Cause that's, it's, it's a misnomer of the thing that vision of where to go next is the prime directive of leaders. And so that's kind of what I'm passionate about is helping leaders re- rekindle that within themselves. Do you think enough leaders are sort of creative enough to, I've spoken with people before and people have said that, look, you know, creativity is up, you know, is rising. There are mm. more and more people out there really yeah. realizing what creativity is. And, and yet there are other people who sort of say, you know, look, you know, depending upon how you actually define creativity, most CEOs nowadays are pretty out of the box. Right. You know, what's your sort of view on that? Yeah, I think a lot of them are. I think the the barrier between idea and execution is lower than it's ever been. Um, you know, and this is kind of what we were talking even before the show is I think that's why we're we're at the cusp of the of the rebirth of the Renaissance man, because I can go from idea to execution with very, very minimal effort. Right. And so in in kind of a weird, weird repeat of the past, um, you know, when you had the first Renaissance man, the Leonardo da Vinci's, you know, the, the, the Michelangelo's, all those kind of, all those cats back in the day, um, the, there was no one to tell them no, right? Like if Leonardo da Vinci wanted to go make a weird flying machine and throw himself off a cliff, no one was going to tell him no. There was no regulation, right? There was no, there was no FAA that would come in and be like, God, stop that, you need to calm that down, you know, on all that kind of stuff. They could just think, you know, and, and, and move on. Right. If Ben Franklin wanted to go fly his kite in a, in a thunderstorm and, sh- and get himself shocked by a lightning bolt, no one, there was no municipality that was going to come in and tell him, no, he couldn't do that. And so, um, the, the, the barrier between I- idea and execution was super low, um, in a, in the gift of industrialization was to be able to take idea to implementation at scale right? So that we can scale ideas. Um, so we could take the really good ideas and scale them bigger than they've ever been done before. Well, that's it for this week. Join us next week. Don't forget to have a look at the website. You'll find some stuff to help you develop your creative abilities.
I'm Joel. Who are you? Where do you come from? And what do you do?